Good afternoon. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen, and I am one of the pastors here at Mosaic, and uh, we are thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us on this Father's Day. Um, I know some of you are fathers, and some of you um, are not, but uh, I guess that's a broad category, right? Um, but we are, we are really grateful uh, that you are, are here. I want to give a special shout out to, um, to Augustine. Augustine, uh, we're so glad to see you here today, and our condolences go out to your family. Augustine has had um, two deaths in her family in the last month, um, and uh, we just, we're here for you. And I know that this Father's Day is a little bit extra hard for you, but I uh, know that you're not alone. We're in week number three of a sermon series called Live Sent. We're studying through the book of Jonah, <clears throat> one week per chapter, so we're going to finish up Jonah next week. But this is week number three. Our sermon series is called Live Sent, and what we are trying to do is trying to explore the book of Jonah to discern how God wants to mobilize every single one of us to join him on mission. Because God has a mission of reconciling the world unto himself, and he invites us into his story to be an incredible part of what he is up to in this world. So we're trying to use Jonah as a lens for thinking about how you and I get to join God in his mission. So let's read Jonah chapter 3 together. The words should be up on the screen. Uh, I'll read, and you can follow along. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them. And he did not do it. I want to pose a question for you and I to consider today. Is anyone too far gone? Is anyone too far gone for God? I'd like to show you a couple of pictures. So last Sunday, we all woke up to the tragic events in Orlando. Picture on the left is of the Pulse nightclub, LGBT nightclub in Orlando. On the right, Omar Fatin. I think I'm saying his name right. Uh, the um, Islamic terrorist who attacked 
the gay nightclub because uh, he wanted to kill gay people. So in the aftermath of this event, our country is a little bit reeling. People are proposing lots of different solutions. Some of them relate to Islam, some of them relate to guns, some of them relate to uh, the LGBT community. I don't intend to go there on any of those issues because that's not the way I think God wants us to approach this issue today. I want to talk about an us versus them mentality because that's what Jonah had when he went into Nineveh. He had a us versus them perspective. Us was the good guys. He was from Israel. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the promises of God. They were the chosen people, really and truly. I mean, they weren't making it up. They were really chosen by God. They, they had this divine stamp of approval upon their nation, upon their culture. The only nation in history that could ever claim that. They were God's chosen people. But as Jonah goes into Nineveh in this chapter, he goes in with a chip on his shoulder. And he goes in with an us versus them perspective. It's an us versus them perspective that it is crucial for you and I to avoid as we seek to do mission in the 21st century. So there are two groups uh, represented in these two pictures, two groups that it can be, be very easy for Christians to develop an us versus them mentality about. The first is the gay community, the LGBT community. Now, we have been very clear here at Mosaic that we affirm Jesus's sexual ethic. He said that sexuality was an incredible gift to be enjoyed between one man and one woman together in a lifetime life, um, commitment that we call marriage, the covenant of marriage. And God made sexuality to be a beautiful representation of Christ's love for the church. So a lot of times people hear where the church comes down on issues of sexuality. And sometimes they hear how we might refer to those who have differing opinions. And sometimes it can sound like an us versus them perspective. What I want to encourage each of us to do in the aftermath of a shooting like this, where our LGBT neighbors felt scared, they felt hurt, they felt targeted, I want to urge each and every one of us not to have an us versus them mentality. We are on mission with God, just like Jonah. But our task is not to have the attitude that Jonah carried with him in this chapter. Do I agree with an LGBT lifestyle? No. Do I agree with a, a straight lifestyle that is contrary to God's will on, on sexual or other issues? Of course not. But I recognize that each of us has fallen. Each of us is broken. And unlike Jonah, I believe we cannot engage in mission successfully if we have an us versus them approach. Of course, the other group represented in the picture is that of Islam. Now, after 9-11, it became very easy to demonize Muslims. And it's going to be pretty easy, I'm not saying it right, but pretty easy to do that once again in the aftermath of this shooting. And of course, the calls are already being repeated by Donald Trump and others to ban all Muslims from America. Because it's us versus them. 
Reminds me a lot of Jonah going into Nineveh. He was the good guys. They were the bad guys. And he was coming to ride in like a Messiah. And if they were lucky, maybe he'd save them. That's his attitude. That's his perspective. You remember we learned last week in Jonah chapter 2? Like, he's trying to commit suicide. He's trying to die in the Mediterranean Sea. But God in his grace saves Jonah. He rescues him from himself by swallowing him alive in this great fish. And then Jonah's getting tossed around in there. He feels like, like you know, the, the underworld is trying to capture him. And, and he's, he's saying all these weird things as he's in the belly of the fish. And then God's, God has the whale just spit him up on a dry ground. Not because Jonah repents inside the fish, but in spite of the fact that he doesn't repent. This is all an act of God's incredible grace. But what Jonah does is he doesn't really clean up his act. He can clean up himself. I don't know what he looked like after three days in the belly of a fish. There's probably a lot of stomach acids that have been working on him. Maybe he looked bleached. Maybe he had seaweed wrapped around his head that he couldn't get out. I don't know. But he probably looked rather bizarre. And maybe he took some time to clean, clean himself up. But what he didn't clean up was his attitude. And so he waltzes into Nineveh with an us versus them perspective. An us versus them mentality. This entire series is about joining God on his mission of reconciling the world unto himself. Do we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Absolutely. Do we believe that there are certain ways of living that are outside the bounds of what Jesus has called us to? Absolutely. But do we believe that Jesus has called us to love all of our neighbors, whether they are in the LGBT community or whether they are Islamic or whether they are a different political party than you? Absolutely. Jesus has called us to join him on his mission And the only way to do that successfully is if we reject an us versus them combative approach. Everybody tracking with me? All right. Let's take a look. Let's dive back into Jonah 3. Very first verse. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, the the phrasing of this is important because this is exactly the way it's worded in Jonah chapter 1 where the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it says, Jonah got up and went. But the problem was in Jonah chapter one, Jonah did not get up and went in the right direction. He went up and went in the wrong direction. He went to go to Tarshish. He went to get as far away from God as he could. So now God repeats the command. And the narrator of of, of Jonah, whoever wrote this book, wants us to understand and remember that first command. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And he says, get up and go. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and he went. He went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. It was a burgeoning metropolis like New York City. I don't know exactly how big it was, but apparently it would take you three days to see the sights and sounds of ancient Nineveh. Really big city for those days, especially. One of the most important cities in the Assyrian Empire. Back then, the Assyrian Empire was kind of fractured, so they didn't really have one capital city. They had three or four different cities. And the, the, the governor, the prince, 
in that city. They all claimed to be king. So there was like this civil war going on in Assyria. And there were three or four different guys. And they all said they were the king. And they were ruling over a city and maybe the suburbs around that city. But Nineveh was one of the most important. Okay? And so Nineveh is the target. Nineveh is where God calls Jonah to go live on mission. So Jonah goes. But the problem is, as we kind of talked about in chapter one and chapter two a little bit, is that Jonah doesn't want to go because he's approaching everything from an ethnocentric perspective. He thinks his culture is the only one that's good. Now, like I said, the, the Jews really were God's chosen people. They really had been given the law and the promises and the covenants. Nobody else got all that stuff. So there was like a, like a little smidgen of truth but the problem was, as Pastor Woodley nailed it in, when he preached on Jonah chapter 1, is that God's plan and promise from the get-go, from Genesis 3, verse 15, had always been for the nations. And that includes this, this city of Nineveh that Jonah feels is too far gone. Those people aren't reachable. Those people aren't worth my time. It's us versus them. But at least Jonah gets up and goes. Maybe he's afraid that, you know, the first time he ran from God, God sent a whale after him. Now that he's on dry land, maybe, maybe a lion's going to come eat him if he, if he keeps running from God. So for whatever reason, he decides to go. And he shows up, and on the first day of his walk in the city, I don't know if he's going in a straight line down to town hall, to the palace, or if he's just kind of meandering around. I don't know. But he sets out, and he's on the first day of his walk through this city, and he proclaims... In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. They're like, that's a short sermon. I wish your, your sermons were that brief, Stephen. Um, really, what this is, is this is a summary statement. Okay, so Jonah probably said a whole lot more, but this is the writer's way of saying, this is the basic overview. This is the point of Jonah's sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh, Nineveh will be Demolished. So what is the response? The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast. That's when you abstain from, from food, from water, or perhaps other things. They proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Now when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is an ancient way of, of mourning. Back up few thousand years ago this is what they did they would they would scatter ashes they would they would wear um rags rather than their their royal robes they would not eat any food they would not drink any water and they would sit on a pile of ashes and they would mourn and and pray and repent of whatever they had done wrong so the king issues a decree in Nineveh he says by order of the king and his nobles no man or beast herd or flock is to taste anything at all they must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. So Jonah shows up, probably still looking a little worse for the wear from his voyage in the Mediterranean. And he strolls into Nineveh as this reluctant preacher, this missionary who didn't want to go, 
this guy who's only on mission because God has twisted his arm. And uh, he starts preaching in 40 days. Nineveh will be destroyed. Nineveh will be demolished. 40 days, that's your time limit, and then it's up. And the people start hearing. And it says that, that they're, they're concerned. So they proclaim a fast. They begin to dress in sackcloth. They begin to scatter the ashes I don't know if it st starts from the top down or, it, or it's, it's a grassroots movement and it ends up with the king. But either way, the king of this city, the king of Nineveh, gets involved. And he proclaims this fast. And like they typically did in some of these uh, non-Jewish cultures back then, their feasts involved the animals. Which to us sounds really bizarre. But he said, we are going to fast. Not only are the people not going to eat or drink water, our animals are not going to eat or drink water. And the reason they did that was because they believed that the gods were interconnected with um, their crops and their animals. And they, this was an agrarian society. They needed, they needed farming and they needed, they needed cows and they needed camels and all of this stuff that in New York City just seems a little weird, right? But that's the way they lived back then. And so they had developed this idea that the gods would curse them and would curse their crops and would curse their herds. So when they did a fast, in order to show the gods that they were serious, they would even have their animals fast. Which I, I really feel bad for the animals because they, they had no idea, why are we not, why did you take the dog food? There was no, no explanation. They don't get it. Um, but they're, they're fasting because this is the way they know to fast. Remember, this is a culture that does not have the promises, does not have the law, does not have the covenants. They are not God's chosen people, so they don't have all of the backstory that the Jewish people have. So they're fasting the only way that they know how. And that's everybody, including the animals, right? So they're, they're fasting, they're doing this thing, uh, and, and the king... He takes off his royal robe, he puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. Now, there's a possibility that this is a, a, big, uh, a big psych out that the king's trying to do here. Because back in ancient Assyria, they had this thing called the, the substitute king. And so when a, when a wandering wise man, a guru, would show up in the city and say, there's about to be judgment, there's about to be problems, and uh, the city is going to be cursed. But what happened is... The king would, uh, he would abdicate the throne for a few days, and he'd put some nobody on the throne in his place. Usually they go get somebody out of the prison, or they get somebody out of the hospital, and they put them on the throne for a few days. Because the assumption was, when the gods curse our city, they'll, they'll, they'll wipe out the leadership. But I'm not the leader anymore, because I abdicated the throne. So then when that, that nobody gets killed, and he gets wiped out, I'll step back in in a few days, and I'll resume the throne, and it'll all be good. Uh, it, was this, it was this thing called substitute kingship that they did back then. Some people think, as they're, as they're reading these verses, that maybe that's what's going on here. When he lays aside his royal robe, what he's doing, because there was a special significance to the royal robe and, and doing this, that he's trading his outfit for that of, of somebody else, and that they're doing this great big switch. I don't know if that's really what this verse is saying, but it's a, it's a pretty good possibility based on the history of the way things happened in ancient Assyria. So 
You've got this, this king. He's trying to play it both ways. He's not sure. There's this God that, that Jonah is talking about. Is he the real deal? Or is he just like one of these other gods that they've heard about? They're, they're so familiar with all of these different gods. And some have power over the crops. And some have power over the cows. And some have power over the camels. And some have power over, over fertility and having children. And so he's like, we gotta, we got to play all the odds. we got to play the angles just right. And so he issues this proclamation, and they sit on their ashes, and they, they cry. And even the animals don't get to eat anything. And they're told that they must turn from their evil ways and from the violence that they are doing. Because remember, Nineveh was, was a leading city in a very evil empire that was known for being sadistic. It was... Uh, uh, it was a, a very militaristic society that was trying to conquer uh, the Middle East. They were a brutal, uh, a brutal conquering army. They needed to turn from their violence and from their evil ways. So the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Jonah's sitting there. He's like, these people are too far gone. I don't want to deal with them. It's us versus them. We're the good guys. They're the bad ones. We're in the midst of a culture war. Us versus them. But that's not how God views the situation. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. And so God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them. And he did not do it. It's almost a kind of a anticlimactic way of ending the chapter, right? Because this is, this is the end of the chapter. God decided, all right, I'm not going to destroy the city in 40 days. I'm just not going to do it. And so it says, and he did not do it. It's just kind of like, and then, all right. And then we walk away. And we're left wondering, well, 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 well yeah, but what? What's supposed to happen? What's going on in Jonah's heart? What's, what's really going on in Nineveh? And of course, I think that's where the writer of Jonah uh, is saying, hey, keep reading. There's one more chapter to come, which of course we'll talk about next Sunday. But what application can we draw from this narrative, this true story from the life of Jonah, from the, from the history of the nation of Israel? What can we draw from that as we think about this idea of not being us versus them, not thinking of people as too far gone, but instead living on mission because there's no one too far gone. In fact, that's the single biggest idea of this sermon. If you walk away with anything, walk away with this. Each of us should live on mission because there's no one too far gone. There's no one too far gone. Now, just to remind you, when I say to live on mission, what I am saying is that Jesus is on mission, reconciling the world to himself through the cross and through his resurrection. And then he invites each and every one of us to be on mission, to be missionaries, as it were, telling other people the good news, inviting them to respond to Jesus. That's what it means to live on mission. And every one of us should do that because there's no one who is too far gone. Jonah probably thought so, but he was wrong. Why do we think that people are too far gone? I think there's two reasons. First off, we don't understand sin. We don't understand sin. You see, we think people are too far gone because we have misunderstood the Bible's teaching about sin. 
the pictures that I showed you earlier, right, was of the Pulse nightclub, the LGBT nightclub, and of, of an Islamic terrorist. In our nice and neat church worlds, our Sunday afternoon Christianity, it can be very easy to say, well, that is horrible sin. Look at what they're doing. Thank God I'm not like that. Remember the, the, the Pharisee who was praying in the temple and he prayed and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other guys. I thank you that I'm holier than thou. I thank you that I'm better than them. And what he didn't understand and what I think we too often don't understand when we adopt Jonah's mentality is that we don't understand sin. The true biblical teaching about sin is that because of Adam's sin, each of us is in him and we are thoroughly corrupted to our very core so that my heart is capable of indescribable evil. I could be the next Hitler. I could be the next Bin Laden. And so could you. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, no, I could never do that. Well, you maybe never will. But the biblical teaching about sin is that we are corrupted to the core. And apart from the saving grace, the intervention of Jesus Christ, you could be there too, except for the grace of God. You see, it's us versus them because we don't understand sin. We're like, they're sinners. We did a few minor things, but then Jesus saved us and we're all good now. But if we truly understand the biblical teaching about sin, that I am thoroughly corrupted to the very core of my being and I am capable of anything, then it can't be us versus them. I should be liberated to join God on his mission because now I understand the depths of my sin. The other reason we think people are too far gone is because we don't understand grace. First off, we, did, we don't understand how bad we were, but then second, we don't understand how good God is. You see, if we think that people are too far gone, if we think it's us versus them, and we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys, and they're just too far gone, and we just have to wage a culture war against them, we have devalued the incredible goodness of our God. So, there's this old uh, song that says that when God reached down from heaven to save me, he reached way down. And I really like that, that metaphor, that, that way of thinking. Because God's grace stopped me in my tracks. God's grace kept me from going off the edge of the cliff. When, sometimes we forget where we come from. And we think, well, when God reached down from heaven, he didn't have to reach too far. I mean, I was pretty much all the way up there. I'd climbed up halfway up the ladder. I was looking pretty good. But no, when God reached down for me in an act of grace, giving us what we don't deserve, he reached all the way down. Because we didn't even have any effort, any ability to lift up a hand to God. He does all the reaching. He does all the effort. He does all the work. And he reaches down and he snatches us out of the gutters of sin. That's grace. That's this undeserved gift. You see, we think people are too far gone because we don't understand grace. It's not like God is up there saying, man, if they'll give 10%, I think I can get them into the kingdom of God. 
or, or maybe 15% or 25%. Oh man, he only did 17%. I can't save him now. That's not God's perspective. You see, grace is all of God and nothing of us. The reason why we think it's us versus them, the reason why we think people are too far gone and God can't save them and God can't bring them back and God can't do that work is because we don't understand the magnitude of God's grace. We think people are too far gone because we don't understand sin and because we don't understand grace. I've got a quote that I'd like to put up on the screen. I'd like you to consider for a moment. Eric Michael Bryant said, When we care enough to invest in the lives of those who live dangerously, we will be amazed at their willingness to hear our words. This is from a book called Not Like Me, A Field Guide for Influencing a Diverse World. And specifically in the chapter, he's talking about people whose sexuality is different from <clears throat> what the scriptures teach Christians are to follow. Don't miss what he's saying here. He's saying that people who are living a life contrary to that which Jesus calls, they're living dangerously. They're not living in their best interest. They're living in defiance of God, and that never ends up well. They're living a dangerous life. But he says, would we care enough to invest in the lives of those who live dangerously? We will be amazed at their willingness to hear our words. He said, you want, you want people to hear the message of reconciliation that you're trying to preach while you're on mission? Love people who are living dangerously. Invest in their lives. I think another big reason why we think people are too far gone or, or at least we don't act on the fact that they're too far gone is because we say we believe in hell, but we don't really. And I know some of you got a little nervous and you tensed up inside. <clears throat> you don't want Mosaic to be a hellfire and brimstone kind of church. And I understand what you, what you mean by that. I believe in love, I believe in grace, but I do believe in a real hell. Um, I want to read to you an excerpt. This is, total, this is not from the Bible, all right? This is somebody's imagination as they're writing a story, first-person story about this guy's first day in hell. As we read something like this, I think it should shake us if we really believe that there is a hell don't believe it's real, you got no problems. But if you're a Christian and you think this is real, then it should do something for us to spur us on to mission. He said, at last, I am in hell. In spite of all my resolutions not to come, I am here to suffer the just demands of a broken law. Oh God, can it be that I, who was taught the way of truth, virtue, and heaven should choose sin Hell and eternal damnation. Death and judgment are past. The time of repentance has slipped away. Mercy's door is forever shut. I would not heed the warning voice of God, though it thundered in my ear night and day from my cradle to my grave. I hardened my heart and I said I will not yield. 
so at last death came. I tried to repent, but my heart would not melt, and my eyes refused to shed a tear, and I passed into eternity as a damned soul. The worm that never dies has coiled its slimy folds around my naked heart, and in it fastened its venomous fangs. Merciful God, pity me! But the angel of mercy is forever flown. The fiends with their bony hands are grasping for my defenseless soul. Away, ye devils, you shall not touch me, you shall not have my soul. But they have me at last, it is useless for me to resist. Is there none to deliver? None, great God, none? I turn my back on thee. Now you refuse to hear my cry of anguish. The flames of damnation are wrapping my soul in shrouds of eternal misery. Oh, that I had a drop of water to quench this raging thirst that consumes me. But there's no water here. Devils laugh at my agony and exultant shout. They say, enjoy the wages of sin. Enjoy them forever. Oh God, I've been here but one short hour and have suffered more than a thousand tongues can tell. And must I forever suffer thus? Through the ceaseless ages yet to come, must I still suffer on? None to heed my bitter prayers. None to say it will soon be over. It is forever. The darkness is intense, broken only by the lurid flashes of divine wrath that are thrown like thunderbolts from the hand of a just God. I grope in the darkness to find him, but plunge over the precipice of despair onto the rocks below. Bruised and mangled, I rise and stagger on in search of friends, but none are found. All are my enemies. I scream for help, and the only answer is the echo of my own sad cry and the yells of delight from the throats of demons. I'm all alone. Yet multitudes are here. They trample me under their feet. I struggle to rise and they dash me into the lake of everlasting fire. Alone. Yes, I'm alone. I'm without God. I'm without hope. I'm without heaven. These are sobering, imaginative words. Again, this is not Bible, but it's taken from some passages that describe what hell might be like. A person imagining what it would be like to step into the afterlife on the wrong side of God's wrath. Will it be exactly like that? I don't know. But I do know that it will be horrible. And the essence of it is to be separated from God, to be alone without Him, Forever. Christians for 2,000 years have said that they believe in this. If we really do, don't you think we should be on mission with God? Because there's no one too far gone. There's, uh, until a person passes into the afterlife and they've, if they've not trusted Jesus, then it is too late. But it, until then, there is always hope. Because no one is too far gone. I think, um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that whenever we talk about hell, it should be with tears in our eyes. See, people are used to the, the, the preacher with the megaphone in Times Square yelling, turn or burn, ridiculous stuff like that. But I think we ought to be the people who say, no, yeah, we do believe in this very old school concept of hell. And because we believe in it, we have to dedicate our lives to snatching people away from the jaws of God's wrath. 
It's not just a task for preachers or quote-unquote missionaries, but it's a task for every child of God that we are called to live on mission because no one is too far gone. I want to leave you with two things. Two steps to living on mission. First, I think we have to learn the story. Learn the story. The story of God. The story of God is that he created the world, but then the world was fallen because of sin. But God is coming in the person of Jesus. He came to offer redemption, to offer a rescue. Jesus died as our substitute. He was raised from the dead. And then he's coming again to recreate the world, to restore paradise, to restore and recreate this new earth. It's the entire story of the Bible in four points. That's the story of God. It's the story of his work in our world. I think the first step to being on mission is to know that story, to know it really well, to be people of, of the book, to be people of our Bible so that, so that when our, our neighbors are struggling, when our family is struggling, when our coworkers are struggling, we can have gospel conversations with them because we know the story. Then the second thing is pretty simple. You share your story. See, a lot of times we don't join God on mission because we think, well, I have to take a class or I have to read a book or I don't know. I don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. Only the pastor can do that. But it's really as simple as sharing your story. If you're an eyewitness to a crime and uh, the judge subpoenas you and you come in and you raise your hand and you promise to tell the truth, they're not going to ask you about something that you didn't see. They're not going to ask you to, to be an expert witness on some obscure point of the law. They're just going to say, what did you see? What did you observe? Or maybe you're the victim. What happened to you? And you share your story. That's all God has called us to do is to be his witnesses. To learn his story. <laughs> and we were saved in the midst of that story. And then we get to share it. Jonah was in the midst of that story. He shared it because he had to, but not because he wanted to. Because he thought some people are too far gone. Some people are not worth my effort. Some people are not worth my time. The Ninevites were grateful that God didn't have that attitude about them. And I wonder who in your life is there, and God wants you to reach them, but the question will be whether or not you think that they're not worth your time, or that they're already too far gone, or that it's us versus them. Jesus has called every single one of us to live with him on mission, specifically speaking to those of us who are Christians. If you are a child of God here today, you are called to live this lifestyle. You may not have to go to a, a different city like Jonah did. You should share the gospel with your kids. You should share the gospel with your coworkers, with your classmates. We are called to join this incredible mission. Let's pray.